Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Tommy Christie. Tommy is an investor based in California who has done thousands of real estate projects and deals over the past 18 years that he's been in business. In this episode, Tommy will tell us how to get started with real estate investing and we'll go over the systems that he uses to flip over 40 projects at the same time. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company that can service over 30 states across the nation. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. And now, let's hop on to the interview. All right, Tommy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Great. Yes, hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm Tommy Christie. I have a buy, fix, and sell foreclosure business here in Northern California. I guess I got about 17, 18 years or so going. So, uh, high, you know, we did everything from high volume, bottom of the market, you know, the world's falling apart stuff to nowadays when you, we may never foreclose ever again on anything. So the volume has always been there for me. I, I would say on a peak, you know, we would buy 200 houses a year. And then uh, nowadays uh, during COVID, I'm buying one every three months. Like it's, uh, the volume has always been there. I'm, I'm deep in emotional love for rentals. I love rental property for wealth building, for uh, the income streams, for horizontal income. Uh, I've done institutional property management and I have, you know, pretty much cover everything in-house here from property management to rehab to acquisitions. So five states, California, Nevada, Florida, Montana, Missouri right now. And then we also hold, you know, Indiana and Oklahoma and a few other states too. So that's awesome. How did you get started with real estate investing? So yeah, I ran out of college. I was selling coupons door to door, which teaches you how to knock on doors. And um, my brother got me a gig with a guy. He he worked at the bank and one of his and one of the investors was a client of his. And he got me an interview. So I learned how to door knock. That was my entry was making appointments um, and for somebody else who had the money to actually buy houses. So oh, it felt safe just, for you, right? Because you didn't have the fear of going in there and making some kind of weird offer because I mean, it wasn't your money. You were just learning on someone else's done. Yeah, great point. So I, I didn't know the difference between a deed and a deed of trust. I didn't have any formal training. He just said, here's a list of people that have trustee sales scheduled for next week. And I gave me a Polaroid camera and we door knocked it and left a card. And so people would call me back and we would set appointments and he would close them. I would get commissions on every deal. Wow. Was it scary to do that when you're just getting started? Uh, yeah, it was, it was nerve wracking. It wasn't scary. It was just, it was uncomfortable because I didn't own a house. I didn't, I didn't have any relevant experience except for how to make people smile at the door. And that's what they call the C factor. I don't know if you've ever door knocked before, but it's, uh, the C factor is smile, eye contact, enthusiasm. If you're at the door and you look like someone stepped on your puppy, they don't even want to answer the door. They're not going to want to talk to you. So you're at the door, you're enthusiastic, and you know uh, most people would just give me the time of day. And from there, uh, Chris, who was my mentor and um, you know who was basically my employer at the time, came in and killed it. You know he just had 20 years experience. He just was the guy. You know he was really the guy. To, so I was just, I all I did was open doors and get so, paid handsomely. And at what point did you decide to go into it yourself? 2005 when everybody felt you know like real estate was easy and you know your dog could get a mortgage I felt like I could start my own business and I so I did and I did not kill it but I didn't I didn't crash and burn and I'm still going but I, I didn't understand property management 
I didn't understand investor management. I didn't know how to recruit money. I could buy houses. That was my thing. That was the one thing I was good at. So, so what were you saying was like, to... what were you doing in 2005 that wasn't really working that you're doing now that is working? So in 2005, what wasn't working, you know, on the opposite side of that, well, the one thing that works across the board, any market, any time, you know, to, to reframe that question is door knocking. I have gotten the best terms deals and other across the board. So in 2005, you're, you know, everyone, everything was worth 300 grand or more, right? You know, I would do subject to deals and terms deals. That was really where I built my wealth was just, I had just enough money, you know, the 20, 30,000 bucks to cure a foreclosure, move people, do the, keep people in the homes even. So I hope I answered the question there, you know, but you know, cause nowadays it still totally works. It's just being in front of people, you know, helping people, acknowledging the issue, acknowledging the problem or the offer and then solving a problem. Would you say door knocking is probably better because you have that face-to-face -face connection. So they're more willing to talk to you versus getting a postcard or a phone call. And it's easy to just dismiss that person. Yeah. I would say the real true variance there is it's one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, it's relationship versus if they click on 10 websites and they choose your website or they, they get 10 pieces of mail and, you know, and they choose your piece of mail or other, there's a need to kind of shop around or other. Um, I feel like the relationship builds to the point where um, an acknowledgement of each party's needs is easier to nail that down. I mean, I, I need to be able to buy it at a rate that I don't lose my tail on it or that I can make it smell brand new again and shine it up and put it on the market for a profit. You know, a, a, an assumption and acknowledgement of risk and they need to be able to get a reasonable price for their asset. You know, what, what each party believes to be is fair. And, you know, with, between, you know, with bridging those two together, it's, it's different than the mail. It's different than the, you know, the digital stuff. Cause a lot of people, you just need to be able to get in the door. And then from there, you know, you get common ground. Exactly. You start building rapport. And I was wondering why would people agree to sell their property to you subject to if, you know, they know, I guess that if they could put on the market, they would probably make some more money. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It's a matter of value. Okay. So uh, I still have a 2000 and six subject to deal that I own here in, in Northern California. Uh, that one was an inheritance. The kids were managing it. They didn't own it, but they had the right to own it through probate court. So, you know, a way to explain that would be that, you know, if they inherited what, you know, their parents gave each of them 50% ownership in the asset, it takes a judge to give them permission to own that. So the deceased owner it doesn't affect their credit report at all. They were the borrower on the loan, you know, five, 10 years prior. And at that point in time, they wanted to stay for, I think it was a year. We made an agreement with them. They got to stay for a year. So we kept the loan in place. We cured it. And then after that period of time, which turns out after the fact that they wanted to finish their grow, they had an unlicensed grow in their garage. So, and we didn't know that at the time, but that, that's why they wanted to wait on moving out. And then they sold it. They sold all the product or whatever. But that one was a subject to deal because the owners, it didn't affect their credit report. And some people want that, you know, that you get them a year to cure their credit report. You make the payments on time for them for a year and it shoots their credit scores up. If, especially if they're relocating out of state where the money goes a lot further. I, I mean, it's, there's so much to it. It's, it's, it's never one thing, but in reality, it's a matter of value because if my cost of money is 10% on average and the mortgage is five, 
I can build that into an offer to make it worth their while to leave the, to leave the mortgage in place. Yeah. And I've never had one called due in 15 plus years. I've never had one mortgage called due because, you know, everyone always worries about that. But my one caveat there, just so under, you know, licensed professionals are held to a different standard. So it, title companies can no longer do FHA sing, you know, subject twos. And you as, you know, and maybe as, as if you're a licensed real estate agent or a broker, you can't, you know, you can't get into contract taking over someone's mortgage in theory. This is California based. I don't, I can't vouch for it nationally that says you're going to be making these payments without formally assuming it. They just assume as a licensed professional, you're going to go through the process to formally assume mortgages of which none of them are, can be assumed. Some Do you USDA have your license products. in California? What's that? Do you have a license in California? I don't. It just wasn't worth it. You know, the restrictions that uh, they hold the professionals to, they feel like, I don't know, it's a California thing. It just didn't make sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, so my girlfriend, she kind of got famous on TikTok. And then a lot of people ask the same question, like, hey, is it worth it to get my license if I want to get into real estate? And I pretty much had the same thing. Like, there's actually a lot of restrictions that you get if you have a license. Like, when you send out your mailers, you kind of have to write down that you're a licensed agent. And every time you get a contract, you have to let them know that you're a licensed agent. Otherwise, you can come back 10 years from now and sue you for not disclosing that fact. And your value. You have to write it in contract, what you think it's worth. And then you say, hey, I think it's worth 360. And then you, you put 100 grand in the thing, you shine it up, you put on the market 420. Oh, you said it was worth 360. You lied. You know, like in reality, the market's shifting. It's, you know, it's always changing. So the disclosures are different. Everything's different. But I'll tell you one guy that is a longtime foreclosure guy that is licensed, buys them, uses his own agency to buy, uses his own agency to sell. There's that vertical integration. In, in theory, if you're saving, you know, two, 3% on every single transaction, there is a reason there, you know, there's a worthwhile value there for people to do it and to get licensed. But when you're buying from homeowners and door knocking and probates and bankruptcies and divorces and all the intricacies of, of distressed real estate, because that's my world is distressed real estate. It doesn't have to be foreclosures. doesn't, I mean, it can just be dirt, you know, a turd, it could be anything. So I found that I didn't need to be licensed. I don't have any problem appropriately compensating the agents and brokers who represent me, like they're doing their thing. And sometimes on Saturday when I'm poolside, like they're answering their phones and doing open houses and it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of work. So That's I right. value that side and I don't have any problem compensating someone for that side. Yeah. So when did you expand your operations so that it was no longer just you and you had team members? In 2006, I brought in my business partner as an employee. And then in 2008, we had babies and I couldn't afford them anymore and the world fell apart. So that was a natural, he came on as a partner in like, let's just say 2009. Yeah, ish. So 2009 ish. So then we added Vegas and trustee sales. And then, so at that point in time, that's when I grew knowing that I could get off a plane, underwrite five, 10 deals and buy five or 10. Like the volume was just out of this world. And so that's when I really needed help. I had a construction manager and went to data manager. And then we went to a book. I brought in my um, controller and my, my controller actually had a bookkeeper. When your bookkeeper has a bookkeeper, it just got you know to the point where we were doing, I would say I was doing a trustee sale wholesale model because I didn't ha I'd have enough money and I paid for all the overhead. So people would bring in, you know, say 200,000 bucks, they would end up with a house, but they wouldn't know which one it was until the end of the day, because I would be picking, choosing 
you know, between the deals of what I would put my money on. And back then my model was anything 60 grand or less in California, I would buy it. And that's how I built my rental portfolio. So from there, I needed people, 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 people until right now COVID is that real look, you know, deep look in the mirror of, of saying, what in the world do I need? You know, what do I, how do I survive with overhead cost of interest and cost of doing business? And so I scaled way up. I would say we had like seven, eight heads, you know, full server, you know, full speed ahead, spending a lot of money on the flip business. And then I scaled it down to 12 when we were building imitation homes. That's crazy. I don't think I've heard of any investor who has 70 heads uh, on their team. Seven. Amazing. Oh, seven. seven heads. And then I, well, when I went to imitation homes, I had to hire 70. That was the difference is that, so when you go to imitation homes, I was just a simple W2. I was a vested owner inside of the, of the play. They brought me out of self-employment, made it worth my while to bring in. I had, you know, 30 construction heads out there in the field. We what is Invitation Homes? Invitation Homes, uh, ticker, single, ticker symbols, I-N-V-H, was a Blackstone funded. Uh, you know, every front page article you read about big bad investors, you know, coming in and buying up houses. Yeah, they, they tapped me and my partner, Daniel Claiborne, and we built NorCal. We built 14 markets nationally, and my market was NorCal. Um, and we bought 2,500 houses in two years. Wow. Yeah. So, so basically, you were an investor doing your own thing, I guess, going to Vegas, going to different markets. Yeah. And then Blackstone saw you as like a big investor and said, hey, we want you to work for us to help acquire properties for our large hedge fund. And they you were like, to, all right, let's go to work. And they went to the title company. Homes. Yeah, they went to the title company and said, hey, who do we interview? Who do we talk to? And so they got five of us and all of us said, oh, I can do this way better than you. And then they said, all of us failed. And then they came back to all of us in different ways. And then we figured it out that, I mean, it was just a gamble it, it, to get an amazing W2, the bonus, the, you know, the upside of going public with, I got the smallest piece of the biggest residential play ever. Yeah. Versus having the biggest piece of the smallest, you know, residential play ever. And I chose, it was totally worth it. And I, I grew my contacts. I grew, I grew as an investor. Like I loved it. That was fun. And we'd buy 10 houses a day. One day in October of 12, I bought 40, I want to say 43 houses in one day. Wow. That's right. That so was what would fun. you say is like the difference between working for a large hedge fund versus doing it on your own? So the biggest difference is, is accountability really. I mean, because if you're an analyst, you, you got to get motivated by something. You're right. If they brought you in, they're like, hey, Sean, here it is. Here's 100 leads. I'd like for you to write as many offers as you can on these things. You know, lock these things up. Your compensation may or may not match your activity level. You know, if you're a deal maker and you're a private party, you're a W2 guy, you're like, hey, I, I get 100 bucks every deal, every contract we get. I get 1,000 bucks every deal we, you know, we land. Or I come in, I don't get paid at all. I'm the agent for 100 deals. That's where my biggest competitor for the Blackstone file was, was uh, you know, Tom Daves, I don't know if you know Tom Daves for our area, just a power agent, you know, great dude. And he's like, no, nah, I just really want to murder it in real estate. I'm going to kill it on the real estate agency side. He brought in an appraiser and And so he looked at the, from the outside looking in as a fee-based value. I looked at it as saying, you know, I get all the benefits of the upside of what we're going to create this billion dollar portfolio. And so the, you know, those two completely different roles. And then I hired analysts who came in and those dudes were locking up deals and real estate, you know, like all the REO short sale, everything from 2012 to 14. 
Um, I mean, you remember how long it took to get a short sale approved. How long has it been since you started? Well, 2016, so I actually never did short sales myself. Okay, so yeah, I mean, the short sales were like 80 asset managers for Chase, B of A, Wells Fargo, you know, all around. And you would wait and wait and wait and wait. But you'd be in contract sometimes for eight months, 10 months. Like we've already closed the fund and we had to set money aside waiting to see if they'll final approve our short sale. And then, you, you know, you get deals approved. So the biggest deal difference there is as a W-2, how are they compensated? Is it worth your while? I mean, you listen to the guys that were at Ameri you know, AmeriQuest Mortgage, like they would sleep there, answer the phone because every single, they get you know, a point, a funding point on every single loan they were doing and they were just putting out all kinds of advertising. So like, you know, it's how you get compensated. It's how you value your time. And they made it way worth my while and W-2 and bonus and, you know, vesting. So came in and we hired 90 people and I had to maybe get rid of 10 or 15 before I left. Yeah. And then I had my baby and I took 90, I took 90 days off once I had my, my, my girl and my daughter. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. And after going through that experience, did you take anything from that to apply to your own business? Yeah, that, that was the, I would say as I was leaving, real estate companies were starting to redefine themselves as tech companies. Oh, it's just a technology play, you know, it's this, like, and that was the big change for me was trying to figure out, you know, how do I make this model work? You know, how, how much is it going to be different? And you name it, Roofstock who came in and they're selling single family residences now, like they're a, a six cap or a seven cap or an eight cap. And so that kind of mentality made me realize uh, that the longevity of the portfolio you know, the true value I was going to be creating my business was going to have to be in rentals. And so that's kind of where my heart is now. Okay. Do you want to talk a lot a bit about that now? Yeah. I, so my range there is I bought one in Evansville, Indiana last five months ago for eight grand, you know, and I put 30 in it. So I'm in it all in it at 30. It brings in seven and a quarter month. And then I am, uh, we are in underwriting right now to, firm up our offer on 10 units in Daytona beach, Florida right now. That's commercial. So the quite a difference is, is that I'm buying one with my qualified funds for 30,000 bucks out of state that just gets a, it's like a 24% gross yield, you know, it's delivering like a high teens net yield. And then I have the commercial stuff, which is stabilize it. It's the Burr method, which it, my heart's in the Burr method right now. If you buy it, renovate it, uh, re-rent it, and then refinance it, pull it all out. So, you know, it's a stabilized model. So that's, as long as I can get a very reasonable amount of my money back or leave it in a, at a ridiculously high return, that's my horizontal income. So my vertical income is, I don't know if you know the difference between horizontal and vertical income, but as I define it, vertical income is when I'm standing up and I'm trying to make money and I'm getting paid to stand up, right? horizontal income was when I was sleeping night night and I still got money coming in from all different angles. And you know what, you know, you make, what do you make? $200 on a, on a net on a rental sometimes, you know, like you, you see people underwrite stuff, you know, really tight. You break that down. That's like, you know, if you make $300, you're like 10 bucks a day on that rental. Right. But not a lot of people break it down to that thing. You know, they say, oh, I'll make 3,600 bucks a year on a rental or add all that up try and get to a number. Yeah, that's awesome. And how are you even finding properties and deals from all across the country if you're based in California? 
the distress stuff that is REO based still, you know, HubZoo and auction.com and Zome and some of the main distressed websites. That's just a vol, you know, it's a volume play. The more you're on it, the more you're bidding, the more you're going to make, the more find, even more deals you're going to find. I find that my best deals right now are coming from relationships, people that know I'm looking for it, people that are wanting to split a deal or, you know, people that are wanting a, a wholesale fee or a, a partnership of some kind or lending, you know, some kind of lending relationship. It's, you know, when, when you, when someone comes to you with, with their sweetheart deal and they know they just, maybe there's a, a, a gap of how much money they don't have. They have enough money to buy it. They don't have enough money to rehab it. Or they just, they know that it's worth significantly more. They want to sell you the contract. The relationships are the biggest value I'm getting right now to not have to advertise, not have to have, you name it, you know, all kinds of people in here showing up to tons and tons and tons of appointments, not getting the deal. I'm getting a ton out of just having relationships with people who are trying to make the deals. And how are you getting those relationships in the first place? I, I call people like you name it. If I get a fixer on the market, anything, even though I get killed on MLS, I had bought an MLS deal this year. For my, it must've been my first one in a zillion years. Every agent that has them, I ask to remain, you know, on their list of what they're going to have coming available for, for just fixers in general. And I get some really interesting stuff and the numbers have to work. You know, you, we come in at our number and a lot of people I think don't understand that. People can ask whatever they're going to ask for. If the property's on the market for 300 and you really genuinely can only pay 270, a lot of times you might just be the most competitive offer at 270. Mm-hmm. Some people say, oh, I'm going to have to come in 10% under. And I, I mean, the seller probably won't even look at my offer. Make the offer and make it look educated and you get the deal. Or it falls out and they come right back to you and realize that you are a better educated, a more educated offer. So if you're a brand new investor um, trying to get into it, would you recommend that they just look at the MLS and find the agents that are selling fixers and then try to build that relationship with them? I, I believe that there's value there. I think that the people that are doing their one, one deal at a time, 90 days, 120 days, 180 day deal, you know, two deals a year with the same amount of money, right? That's the turns on the money. You got to start somewhere. And if you do start with those agents, the two way street is, is when you have vacants or referrals for that agent, they think of you first. So I'm not an agent or a broker. So people that would come to me and just kind of say, Hey, do you like this deal? Or I have something available. Someone's going to be buying one of my houses. They're going to be selling one. The value of, you know, communicating with these agents direct comes and you can get refer them business. I mean, the goal here is, is, is to be genuinely engaged in trying to find deals and keeping in touch, like the constant contact approach to you know, keeping in touch with someone who, kn- who knows that they can be bringing you value. And if I wasn't in a position right now where, because I have 30 something flips right now, like if I was hungry for flips, I would be calling, I would have no problem at any one of our markets calling, you know, three to five agents a week, three to five agents a day, you know, even if it means, you know, keeping in touch with them. But the real value for someone that's just trying to find a deal is seeing the opportunity that maybe someone else isn't. What's the driving, driving for dollar style? You know, you see the vacant house, you upload the leads and you start your mailers to people that aren't getting the stuff at random. And the blight lists, you know, shooting photos of all the blight lists, the NODs, code enforcement, mailings that go through uh, the blight lists. Uh, you're going to have significantly greater results making offers on vacant houses than you are on standard MLS offers. Yeah. And what other like direct... I guess, contacts are you doing to get people to contact you? Are you doing direct mail? Are you cold calling? So we've paused the direct mail 
and I've never done cold calling. I have heard amazing results from people who are pump, you know, pumping in money into those. And I get, man, I get text messages and phone calls on my rentals all the time. Every morning I wake up, oh, Jacksonville, nope. (laughs) Yeah, just, uh, but there is a ton of value there. The bots and the, the, you know, the direct dials and other there's a ton of value there. I, I don't do it. And uh, I am starting to do more joint ventures. Um, I've got a guy in Atlanta that's been sending me stuff. That I can get a better ROI taking half ownership of the upside than doing 100% of the deal here in Northern California right now. Mm-hmm. Guys buying $100,000 houses, you know, all in at 100. It's worth 160. You know, we're just not seeing that kind of margin here. Yeah. And at that price point, you guys can pretty much do it with cash or are you still so We do all with cash. We, we put it down and, uh, you know, we get into something that, you know, 60, you put 40 in it and, you know, they're, they're throwing them on the market at a buck 59. And, you know, there's usually a hurt, a small hurdle, an annualized hurdle. So the money has to get at least a 10% ROI, you know, for the year. And they're, you know, when they split a $30,000 profit, they get 15,000 bucks and they have no skin in the game, no money. They just put their hustle up, put the deal up they are super motivated to get, you know, to call me back and do the next deal. And I, I love that Midwest, you know, East coast, some of that probably like there's just certain markets that are just thriving right now. Tulsa. I love Tulsa, Oklahoma and Orlando, Florida, tons of people moving to Orlando, Florida. Those, that, those markets are on fire too. How do you trust these people who are out of state if you haven't done a deal with them in the past? Great question. I, I mean, you got to think about it as one deal at a time. How do you genuinely understand what is happening and how are you going to control that? And the easiest way to do it is to just to do stuff that's non, that, you know, that's title guaranteed. You know, when you move your money to a title company and you get closing docs of which you're the owner and you have a standard joint venture agreement, it's just got to be in writing as how it's going to be managed. I mean, there are a lot of people who get analysis paralysis over the fact that their roofer might steal 5,000 bucks from them. It could happen. Like you very well could have a subcontractor who's, you know, not doing their part, but it, you know, it's easier now to get onto LinkedIn and kind of underwrite people and to get, you know, to see someone's following. I mean, when you look at something for sale on Facebook marketplace and you can tell they just started their corporate account, you know, three months ago, you know, that person is definitely not selling a vehicle that they actually, you know, whatever it is. So you just got to get a gut for people and have a a risk tolerance acknowledging you may not be right. And they might be kind of playing the game against you, but I haven't had that issue. We've had a contractor walk in the middle of a job that cost us dearly. And we had a contractor complete work that he said was, you know, a licensed guy, but he brought in unlicensed, you know, subs and we've lost, you know, all kinds of money just because of the fact that it wasn't an insurable claim, you know, a water claim that comes from a bad shower that comes from a leak that comes from poor craftsmanship. So there are going to be opportunities when you're not on site and you're not managing them or not communicating with them. Well, we use, um, you know, with, within our photos, identifying before and after photos and getting photos of every single receipt, you mean everything from a hose bib to a set of, con- of cabinets and one deal at a time, the biggest risks will be how, you, when you release money to people for work completed or purchasing stuff like that. And as long as you have it recorded or have it written down, they're usually getting their upside. It's like they have to trust us that they're going to get their return, our, our completed project, which 
of course, is sold with title and escrow insurance. So. Right. I mean, I think you mentioned some very important things here, like taking before and after photos when work is done and also getting all the yeah. receipts. What other systems do you have that kind of guarantees that your things run very smoothly? So what we're implementing now is, I mean, much like coming out and, and doing the show right now, I've got a guy that builds concrete houses and you know structures and his construction company uses WhatsApp for that. And so there are people using very affordable, if not free resources that we're going to start implementing into our own construction management. And as for the systems, we do our weekly meeting and the weekly meeting acknowledges action items from last week, whether they're completed or not, and setting the action items, you know, for go forward. And the, you know, some of the best communication tools we're using are, you know, really are just the WhatsApp and the text message, just communication with our, so our stagers know the dates, our professional photographers know the dates and the coordination can be totally done. I mean, most of the, anybody who would reach out to me from seeing this with you right now would have those kinds of questions about doing one deal at a time. So if you're thinking about doing three deals at a time or nine deals at a time, some of those systems are critical. But I started out with just a Google Doc and you know tracking the you know the sheet and the and the construction spend. And our construction hasn't changed. People that are good at it and you really need them to work, you know, it's it's a matter of staying on them, knowing when they show up, knowing when they leave, and you know, just putting processes in place for when you know that the construction draws are going to be necessary. Are you the project manager for your projects or do you hire that out? Not right now. No, it's, I would say I see, I probably see half the houses we buy now at best. I'm a desk flipper, but I love now that the COVID's happened, I've been able to go where we've decided to rein it in. We're not doing, we're not doing a lot of rural stuff anymore. So I have three in my, in the County I live in. I haven't had three Placer County flips at the same time since like 2010. Because the, the, I tend to have a lower price point, higher margin uh, target. And when I'm flipping $650,000, $700,000 houses, you know, it's a different transaction. And there, it blows my mind, all the people who flip in the Bay Area, the margins, sometimes they don't change. You know, like they're just trying to make their 30000 bucks, but they're laying out $700,000 to make thirty grand. Like, you got like a 5% or less margin on the deal. And that stuff starts to stress me out. So... I always touch the expensive houses, so I don't put it onto my construction manager. Just hope he did his part, you know. And I just got out of a deal at eight and a quarter here in Elk Grove that I misflipped it because I showed up. I did not make the master bathroom a priority, and every single showing gave us feedback. Though, like, oh, why didn't they do this? You know, why didn't they do that? And I try and tell my wife that, and she'll be like. Why didn't you just concrete this from, you know, here to the, to the fence? Like, it's not going to affect the deal. You know, like I have to find it. You have to know where to cut it off without making it look like you didn't, you know, you cut a corner or something like that. So I always touch the expensive ones and I touch the really, really cheap ones because I love to keep those. Yeah. So what would you say is kind of like the ratio between buying versus keeping or sorry, buying and selling versus keeping? At, I'm at one to 10 right now. For every 10 flips I do, I'm able to buy a rental and find something that makes sense. And that's a little bit skewed because um, since I don't have like, you know, qual my qualified funds, I put them to bed in March. I've just had money just sitting in the account. Who knew, you know, who knows what's going to come up. Buying businesses is really, really what's motivating me right now instead of the properties and that kind of stuff. You, there's no financing for that. You know, SBA, if you want to wait 90 days, right? 
So buying businesses, I put that kind of money aside, but I started buying rentals, you know, 30,000 here, 30,000 there, or you buy a $20,000 house, put 20 grand in it and keep those in my IRA. And so that the numbers are skewed like that, but I want to get to the point. I don't have to flip the ones that I buy at a stabilized rent that I want to keep. I want to flip the ones that we're choosing to flip and I'd buy, I mean, I'd never sell a house ever again if I could. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, you flip to build that capital stack and then you use that to buy rentals so that you have that. Yeah, my, my rental company is called iloverentals.com. I, I love them. I love rentals. I want everybody to have rentals. So when people call me and then, you know, mess with, keep that thing. How, you know, I start kind of walking people through the burst strategy or the, you know, the seasoning necessary to get these amazing loans. And the W2 world is like, they're full adults. I'm barely an adult on paper. Self-employed people, the banks hate me. Like, and so people who are gainfully employed and they have 20, 30, 40, 50,000 bucks to leave into a rental are sometimes they're not pulling the trigger, like investing for longevity. And they're the best lender, you know, they're the best borrowers out there. So, so once you have so many rentals, I know it's pretty much impossible to get that traditional Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. What are you doing after that to hold on to it or finance them? It's commercial then. I mean, our, I'll do, I'll put five, six, seven of them together and get a, a reasonable rate. I mean, I'm getting quoted on one right now at 4.75. Uh, it's a 10-year note with a five-year swap. So I get, I'm locked in at five years, but I'm, they're going to kick up my interest rate 2% at year five once the prepayment falls off. And that's the recurring revenue for the bank. So you can get sub-five debt on five or more houses that you put together. And that's been ours. I use uh, you know First Northern Bank. It's a regional bank. And they bought our local bank. So you just put them together and get a, you know, a, a cross collateralized loan. Yeah. Makes and sense. the major players, the national players do that, but uh, watch out for yield maintenance agreements where they say, I got to get my minimum yield on this across the board because they're selling the assets. They're selling the, you know, securities behind them. And that stuff will kill investors. If you don't understand what you're getting, you're getting a great rate. If you promise to never sell the houses. Right. Uh, do you ever plan on maybe selling that portfolio to then buy something larger, like go into the Always. Yeah. space? Have you ever heard yourself say, I'm probably never going to sell this thing? I mean, I have some properties I love, but you know. So I've told myself that and I sold one. I, I bought one, two houses, two 1,250 square foot houses on one lot. Bottle the market, uh, back when auction.com just got started and they, they hadn't perfected their process. I probably paid 50 grand, you know, and it was, even back then I was probably getting 2,400 bucks a month in rent. And I ended up selling that to buy South Lake Tahoe and like a vacation home, you know, some things to roll in in the 1031. And now that I'm rolling out of one of those, again, I have the bug to roll out of one $200,000 house and I'm going into a nine unit in Daytona beach, Florida. You know, it's like I got there, but when you buy something for 50,000 bucks and now it's worth say 250, you have the low, super low property taxes and super high rents, you know, California. It's hard to get out of that comfy, safe, no debt world and take on more risk and do commercial loans. But from a net worth standpoint, the numbers completely make sense. I just hate selling. Right. And there's potential for it to grow more on like the bigger property. If you can, you know, manipulate the net operating income. Yeah, that'll be worth more. I went to an investment meeting with a, a large multifamily guy that 
it was timing. You know, he was a doctor and he bought a four, sold it for an eight, bought, you know, sold the eight, got a 16, you know, just, it's a 20 year process. And now he owns two amazing free and clear, you know, multifamily towers in the Bay area that I, they must spit off ridiculous money. That's crazy. What would you say is your like ultimate goal with all of this? Great question. Mine is the horizontal income. You know, you have that number where it's getting fun now because I don't have to do the investments where when I was doing 40 flips at a time to pay the overhead, it's just numbers. So my ultimate goal will be that I can get back into the artsy fartsy flips. Like I love doing an addition onto a house that creates significant value and you sell it to a client who actually has money. You know, FHA say you play by my rules, right? You know, you still, you sell the safer, reasonable houses and stuff like that. And you get a different buyer and you get a different lender. And I really like doing the creative, heavy upgrade rehab stuff. And the ultimate goal will be the free and clear house. I'm like, it's about a hundred free and clear houses to just bring in. And that's my, I can settle down number. How do you even get to a hundred free and clear houses? You just like start paying down the debt very aggressively? Uh, no, I, I, I think you just get comfortable with the fact that, I mean, I, there's a couple I, I was just talking to that they're, they buy two flips and, every, and out of those two flips, their goal is to have enough income to cover their lifestyle and buy one new rental out of every two flips they do. And they're trying to do you know, 12 a year. So on that pace, they're going to be growing by six rentals a year if they, if they just keep pace. They're, I mean, I think to answer your question, it's live, you know, living within your means, which that's totally subjective like because as I you know as I know where my money goes every month and just under genuinely understanding the risk versus reward associated with the debt you know because if you end up having some of these properties like what you're talking about selling a two unit to get to a four or a six or an eight or you know a 24 unit apartment complex or other the upsides and the appreciation schedules are higher so you end up having to sell some stuff to pay off debt but I mean, I don't want to own a hundred houses in Indiana. I want to own a hundred houses here in California where the politics are going to make it impossible to own houses in general. So I think the rentals will continue to appreciate. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, what would you say are some of the challenges that you faced throughout your entire journey so far? You know, a really weird one I would say would be trust. I always felt like I had the secret sauce for foreclosures and other, and I didn't. You know, like I was at the door, you know, I was a time and place that was available to people when they really needed a resource for, for real estate. So I would almost never talk about my success or never talk about my deals. I wouldn't even network sometimes with people who I thought were competitors or other. And now my greatest resource are my relationships. And I went to lunch with a buddy who has an investor now that might I mean, I, he's looking at putting a significant investment in one of my big deals I have going right now. Just off of our standard, hey, you know, once every year lunch, I have, you know, one of my investor friends. So the greatest value I'm finding is providing value for other people. You know, because for every guy that, you know, a gal like that as, is here just started flipping houses, she runs out of bandwidth after her second flip. They call me, you know, like, I can either play a role in the third flip or wholesale fee or, you know, or other. So by providing value for other people, it's coming back equally, you know? 
I totally agree with that. You know, I started doing like YouTubes and podcasts stuff like this for about a year and a half now. And I'm actually getting calls almost every single day now from people who consume the content. And even though I'm no expert, I'm a little bit above where they are. So they're asking me for yeah. advice to get to the next step. And by I, doing so, I mean, I work as a hard money lender with Coventus and then I'm able to help them fund their deals because now we're able to give them some more value. So it works do you out. see that as coming through as like, um, do you find that that is weekly or you're getting daily? Like, you know, do you see it like a lead source, like that you're cultivating here that you're yeah, getting it's definitely wrapping up, you know, because I only started working at Conventus since December of last year. And you know, back then it's like, I was an engineer. So I had no relationship with the lending industry. Um, yeah. And now it's ramped up to the play to the pace where I do calls every single day. That's great. And I love it too. I love talking to people because I get to hear like my story from a few years ago, you know, where was I a few years ago? That's where yeah. they are now. And you get to people who check back with you, you know, six months later, a year later or something like that. You think they would have forgotten you or other than like, Hey, by the way, I end up doing that deal I spoke to you about and here's how good it turned out. And I love hearing that stuff. Like, exactly. You almost, I almost want to take like, I still take calls that are robo calls that I almost know it's a robo call just because I love like when you do advertising, you answer your phone. When people call you, they're going to call someone else if you don't answer your phone. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those things where you, it's a sacrifice. And I, one of the hesitations I have on my advertising right now is you never know when phone calls are going to come in. And I don't have it really set up where, you know, for every 10 leads, one of my, uh, say an analyst would be able to get the conversion rate would be significantly higher if it was me on the phone, understanding the value, the neighborhood, the product, the person, the situation, and the value as provided. Like I, I have two going in Indiana right now where I gave the guy a choice. Hey, we can either flip this thing for the profit and you know, you get a fee, you know, for your, your part of it, or we can just for exactly what I'm in it, I'll sell it to us. You know, we keep it together. You know, you created it. We're, we're in 50, say it's worth 80,000 bucks, you know, $90,000. He can walk in to long-term equity and we can 1031 two years from now and, you know, really plant a seed that grows together because I don't have that fear anymore of like, if I don't do this deal, you know, I keep it and you only get your fee, you know, it's me, me, me. When you put it together where it works relationship wise for any single person, you know, any situation, you get the better deals, you get the better transactions, you get the better leads It all. And in the end, it comes down to finance. You know, can you afford to keep the thing? Can you take advantage of all the, you know, the rates when you get to that Fannie Freddie stuff and the more commercial loans, creativity is king. And that's yeah. where, you know, you see people, property managers got a 24 unit apartment complex and the owner said, Hey, I'll take a million bucks for this thing. You know, didn't spend six weeks comping it and, you know, hiring a broker and whatever you, they already have their asking price on it and you, either can take the deal or you can't. It comes yeah. to using enough relationships. So I would say it's, you know, having a good abundance mindset because that way you can be creative with things and yeah. you're free to share either your equity or your time. I mean, even like those people who call me from Florida asking to buy my property, sometimes I do pick up the phone and talk to them because there's a good chance that they're actually wholesalers and they might have a deal that they want to offload and yeah. potentially buy in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of provide value for people in that. I mean, I, I really... I love hearing that it, it's, you know, you're getting that kind of turnover for people coming back for more information with you. That's great. Yeah. It's actually a lot of fun, you know, especially now during COVID where we don't have the luxury of going to meetup groups and talking to people. It's nice to have just random chats like this one. You know, there's a lot of fun where we get to talk to people, you know, we're locked in our homes. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you for my niche, my random, if I could flip less houses right now and spend more time looking at stuff is the baby boomer. I want to say it's like 400 
thousand businesses this year will be shut down by people who just they were an operator in their business it could be a print business it could be a buddy of mine's buying a terrarium business in colorado you know for a lot of people they're like i didn't even know there were terrarium stores you know but they have like three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in gross sales you know so they have their upside they have their inventory and it's a, it's an asset and you know i've been kind of networking now with more people that have access to leads of people that may be wanting to sell their businesses. And there's a ton of value in creating systems and putting it in place where the people that are working get to thrive and you get the opportunity to invest. It's interesting. Real big I, niche there. I don't know many people who are buying businesses, but I've heard it on like London Real or from like Dan Pena. Are you kind of following that mentality of buying businesses? No, I'd love to. You said London Real? Yeah. And Dan Pena? No, I haven't. I haven't put near the effort into it that I think it's worth. And I'm really, I'm super motivated by it. Yeah. It sounds like an exciting new venture to get into. So do you have any last tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we finish our show today? I would say that more often than not, the people I've been reaching out to in general, myself, Sean, or other are more than willing to help. Like, you know, a lot of people don't want to break the ice, but when you have a financing question and you need a referral, when you have, um, you know, a dirty title question, and a, you know, anything that has to do with how do you get a transaction, you know, over the line, like you'll find a lot of people have this like non-disclosure, non-compete mentality. In reality, you know, there is a community of people out there that really, you know, we do really want to just provide value for each other. So I, I think to kind of break the ice of people, just, hey, I, this is my third flip. This is my second flip, my first flip. I, but I, I really want to make sure I do it right. You know, like, would you be willing to advise me on this? Or would you be willing to kind of give me your opinion of that, of that market? Do you know anything about that specific submarket or whatever it is? And I think more often than not, people will want to add value, you know, so just kind of get out of your comfort zone. And I, I mean, the most important part is do deals. Like it's so easy. It's so easy. People think that there's this, this block and they pay for these, seminars and other and a lot of what that is is like hey go find a deal or use this system to find a deal and when you do call us that's what their systems are is they we got all the money we got legal we have this that and then we'll split the profits with you or you know gorilla capital has something like that too it's like an 18 percent hurdle or something ginormous but if that's what it takes for you to get your deal done sometimes that stuff works and but do a deal do as many deals as possible and try not to sell everything I think that I love rentals. You know, um, I think I watched a motivational video by Steve Jobs and said that all you have to do is ask. Very rarely will people say no. Like when he was 12 years old, he called William Packard and said, hey, I want to do these things. Give me some parts. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Come through. Even gave him a summer internship. And that kind of started his career in in high tech. Yeah. All you got to do is ask. That's a really great way to put it. And all you got to do is, what do you got to lose? You know, like, what do you got to lose? I got, it turns out that a, a friend of a friend like is married to a, a, a super high producer, real estate, you know, billionaire dude. And now I'm like, what do I got to lose? They live close. You know, like, what do I got? I'm going to reach out to the dude. So maybe the next time we talk, I'll tell you how that goes. Sounds good. Let me know. <laughs> so Tommy, thank you so much for being on the show today. How can people get in contact with you? Uh, simple. My ilovehouses.com um, website is on there. And then my other brand, which brings to my cell phone is my 916 buy sell. Just phone simple phone call, which I bought the brand. You guys can build your own brands in a heartbeat. Super easy. It's 916 buy, sell. 916 buy, sell. That's it. Those rings, rings right to my cell phone. 
Gotcha. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing all of your information. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of this. So again, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.